Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. Tonight we'll be getting to know the senator and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Michael Bennett was born in New Delhi, India in 1964, where his father was working for the U.S. State Department. His family eventually settled in the Washington, D.C. area before Bennett went to Wesleyan University to get his bachelor's degree, then to Yale for his law degree, where he was also editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. Bennett was counsel to the U.S. Deputy Attorney General, special assistant to the U.S. Attorney in Connecticut, then managing director of the Anschutz Investment Company, where he helped to restructure corporate debt. He served as chief of staff to then Denver Mayor John Hickenlooper, who is also currently running for president as a Democrat. Bennett was superintendent of the Denver Public Schools before being appointed in 2009 to fill a vacancy in the U.S. Senate when Ken Salazar resigned. He was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2010 and re-elected in 2016. Bennett is a member of the Senate Committees on Intelligence, Finance, and Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry. He is married, has three daughters, and lives in Denver. Senator Bennett, thank you for joining us Thanks on Conversation with the me, Candidate. Adam. It's nice to see you. We appreciate your time I don't know here. what else there is to say. You guys <laughs> as long as we job. got everything right there, we're yep, in good shape. That was perfect. Uh, first, we want to check in on your health. You had surgery for prostate cancer recently. Uh, first, uh, you know, we know you have a clean bill of health now, but uh, what are some of the takeaways uh, from well, dealing for, with cancer? Me, thank you. For me, the, for the primary takeaway is everybody watching this show should go get screened if they have a prostate, and if they don't, go get screened for something else, because I would have never known that I had it. I had no symptoms. And and that, I'd say two other things. One, it made me think a lot about what it would, what it would be like to get such a diagnosis and not have insurance. My, it cost $93,000 to have this operation, but my family only had to pay 1800 Or if you were somebody who just never heard that you had cancer because you didn't have a primary care physician, this is the only country in the industrialized world where there are millions and millions of people that are faced with that because we've got the screwed up healthcare system that we have. We're glad you're here with us today I'm and glad to back be here. in good health. It's an amazing thing. Five weeks ago, I was on an operating table, and three weeks ago, I announced that I was running, and, and I've just been putting one foot in the front of the other ever since. And this is a question we're asking of a lot of Democrats. This is an epic field of nearly two dozen candidates now. What made you decide that you were the one who could win and be the well, president well, of the Well, in States? the end, what made me want to run was that I feel like America's really at a breaking point. And I reached my own breaking point during the last government shutdown, that foolish, self-inflicted 35 days where, in the end, the president capitulated anyway. A complete waste of time for the American people. And before I was in this job, I was the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools, where I know there are kids in our school districts all over the country that are counting on us to solve problems before they have to address them themselves. And just like when I left business to go work in the schools, uh, I decided the way I could make the biggest contribution to my country now is by running. And um, I'm glad that I'm doing it. I'm glad cancer didn't stop me. Of course, uh, President Trump is the incumbent. What's your strategy for dealing with him if you're the nominee? I think that we should not make him into this huge figure. You know, he, as somebody said today or yesterday, he consumes that kind of energy and it just makes him 
bigger and stronger and seemingly more powerful. I think the guy's a really weak president. I think he's been weak on foreign affairs. I think he's been weak on domestic affairs. I think it is critical for whoever runs against him to be somebody who can talk to the middle of the country. I mean, the middle geographically, where we where Democrats lost and we shouldn't have lost. Uh, and I think it's critical that it be somebody who can take him on on the truth because he just tells lie after lie after lie after lie. And at a certain point, you know, people have kind of accepted that as a normal part of politics. I reject that. You know, I think that um, just like kids in school need to be able to distinguish between um, uh, edited content, the kind of content you do, and someone shooting their mouth off on the internet, we need to be able to do the same thing with our president and in politics generally, or again, we're going to let down the next generation. There have been few, if any, television ads in this cycle, but some of them have already been targeting you based on votes on judicial nominees. Do you feel like you owe an explanation to progressives for voting for some Trump judicial nominees? I'm glad to give you an explanation right now. I, I think I owe an explanation to everybody about everything that I do. I take very seriously my responsibility to advise and consent in the Senate, and still, w knowing that, uh, I have voted f for five times fewer uh, Trump nominees and President Obama voted for George Bush nominees. I have opposed two-thirds of the nominees on which we've taken an actual vote and um, and it's disgraceful that they're on the court. A lot of those people are people that are have strong ideologies, they're very right-wing, a lot of them don't have the experience or the judicial temperament that's needed. Uh, but where I see somebody who does have the judicial temperament uh, that is required, where I think they will have an open mind, I will vote for them even if Donald Trump is putting them on the court. Donald Trump doesn't own our courts. A lot of candidates in this race on the Democratic side support Medicare for all, debt-free college, some even talking about reparations for slavery. Do you worry that your party is moving too far to the left? Well, I worry that um, we're putting ourselves in a position where we can be disqualified by President Trump. I mean, it, if, if President Trump, if you hear him say the Democrats are, are socialists, he's trying to disqualify us. If you hear him say Democrats are for open borders, he's trying to disqualify us. If you hear him say... Uh, Democrats hate Israel or are anti-Semitic. He's trying to disqualify us. So I think that we should understand that's what he's trying to do and make sure we don't make it easier for him than it otherwise would be. Uh, but, I, but we're also going to have the opportunity in this campaign to have a big competition of ideas, to figure out what the National Democratic Party wants to stand for and the agenda we want to make sure we can not just beat Donald Trump, which is critical, but govern the country again on the back end of this. I've been in the Senate for 10 years now. It seems like 100 years. But I've been there for 10 years, and I've gotten a bunch of things done, but I also know why things don't get done. And even before Trump showed up, President Trump showed up, um, we were not governing. And it was broken down. And now we have to figure out a way to resurrect it if I'm not going to be part of the first generation that leaves less opportunity, not more, to the people that are coming after us. Is there one particular idea or policy or leadership trait that you would want voters to associate with Senator Michael Bennett? Yeah, that I tell the truth, no matter how inconvenient it might be. Simple as that. All right, Senator Bennett, these were the easy questions, Thank the you. tough questions await oh, from our New Hampshire voters. I'm Coming up after the break, we'll bring in our studio audience into the conversation. Stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's U Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join you local. See you there.
Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and our candidate tonight, Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. We're going to bring in our audience of New Hampshire voters here for their town hall questions, and we're going to start tonight with Nancy Keene. Hi. Uh, Hi. Thank you for coming to this, this wonderful opportunity for us as a studio audience to get to talk to you one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. This is a wonderful opportunity. Now, that being said, uh, our nation is really, really divided right now, and it's hard to have a civil conversation with someone on the opposite side or who's, who has different beliefs than you do. We're not really talking very well to each other. So I'm wondering if you could think of anything that you could do to bring our nation, our civility back. So I thank you very much for the question, and I love your shoes, by the way. We have them throughout everybody in our household. Uh, uh, I think it's such an incredibly important question. The, the founders of this country did not make an assumption that we would agree with each other. When they put this whole thing together, when they created what they called a republic, what we call a democracy, their expectation was that we would have disagreements. That was the point of being in a free society. But they thought out of those disagreements, we would fashion um, more imaginative and more durable solutions than any king could have come up with on our own. We've totally lost that in our national politics, completely. I've spent the last 10 years of my life representing a state that's a third Democratic, a third Independent, and a third Republican. And when I was one of the you know, votes for the Affordable Care Act in 2010, I didn't just go to uh, uh, liberal places in my state. I spent a lot of time on the eastern plains of Colorado in counties where I'll never win more than 30% of the vote no matter what I do, uh, making sure people there understood why I was trying to do um, uh, what I was doing. And that was the whole year, you might remember, of the Tea Party and all people yelling in all these town halls and all that. And not a single town hall in Colorado was like that. I've never had an interaction like that in my state in 10 years. And I think our elected leaders in Washington need to um, to meet a level of expectation that says you got to find a way um, to, through your disagreements. Not every disagreement we have is a matter of principle, but w even when we have a matter of principle, the most important thing we have to do is figure out how to move the country forward, how to move make progress for the next generation of Americans. We cannot do that in these warring camps. The last point I think I'll make is this. I actually don't think the country is anywhere as divided as our media makes it seem like it is or the social media makes it seem like it is. I mean, people who spend all their time watching cable TV at night and, and are engaging on social media with their politicians are extremely well represented in Washington, D.C. We genuflect to people that are doing that. But that's only about 12 million people in America. The rest of America is 220 million people who are getting up in the morning wanting to raise their family, wanting to build a small business, wanting to figure out how to pay for college or childcare for their kids. And that's who I want to work for as President of the United States, because they have a bunch of issues that we need to resolve, and they're not getting resolved because of the kind of insanity that you're talking about. So thanks for starting on that point. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Next question comes from Kathleen Hoey. Hi, Senator. Welcome to New Hampshire. Thank you. So my question is, what do you think about the trade war with China and the other trade agreements with some of the other countries like Mexico and Canada? Do you think that they're going to benefit Americans? And also, would you reconsider the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership? All great questions. I think the trade war is a really bad idea. I, I think that China had been doing um, 
uh, China's trade policies had been unfair to the United States, and Donald Trump was right to call that out. I think the way he did it, which has provoked a trade war because of the tariffs he put on, is nothing more than a tax on our farmers when they've already got low commodity prices as it is, a tax on our workers, and a tax on our consumers. And he keeps denying that's true. He keeps saying China is paying for all of this. They're not paying for it any more than Mexico is paying for the wall that he said that they would pay for. Um, so I think that's bad. And, I, and I, what I would like us to do is understand that we have a commonality of interest with countries all over the world, with the possible exception of North Korea, Russia, and China, uh, in the sense that none of us wants to be run by China, and none of us is big enough to compete with China on our own. That creates a huge opportunity for us to work with our allies in this region, but also in Europe and in places around Asia, because they also don't want to be dominated by uh, China to say, look, these are what the rules of the road are going to look like. Stealing our intellectual property is not fair. Having state-sponsored businesses that, that uh, compete unfairly with our businesses is not fair. Not opening your markets to us when we are opening your markets to you is not fair. And I think there's real strength in numbers, you know, if we work together with our allies. President Trump has jettisoned ally after ally after ally um, in, in his effort to sort of just, I think, stay on the cable news at night. We've got to do a lot better than that. I think on TPP, the countries that were involved in that went ahead and signed the agreement themselves. And that means that there are markets that need to be open to our agriculture that are not now open to agriculture. And so as we think about maybe re re reopening TPP, we need to make sure that it's got the labor and environmental protections that we would want. But we can't just turn our back on these global markets. That's where most of the growth is going to come for agriculture and for actually manufacturing, manufacturing exports right here in New Hampshire. Thank you very Thank much. You, Kathleen. Yeah. Quick follow on that. And by the way, just not, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Well, do you think NAFTA has been a net benefit for American workers? I think it's a ben been a, be a benefit for some agricultural workers, for example, and it's been a real detriment to others, auto workers, for example. And we need to be aware and honest with the American people about where it's worked and where it hasn't worked. Social media question coming in from Carolyn Hannon. Uh, what is your greatest hope for our nation? My greatest hope for our nation is that we will have an economy that when, when the economy grows, everybody benefits from that, that, which we have not had for the last 40 years, that we will have a restoration of our political institutions and our political vocabulary and our politics so we're actually supporting the next generation of Americans. So we can fulfill the example that our parents and grandparents set for us. That's an important example that they set. It's not that they did everything perfectly, but it can't, they at least tried. And I think the best way we can fulfill that legacy is by making sure that we pass it on to the next generation of Americans and give them a chance to fulfill that legacy as well. That's what I hope for our country. Next question comes from Terrence Gennarian. Thank you for being here, Senator. Thank you, Terrence. As a legal immigrant who is now proudly a US citizen, uh, coming to the United States and being part of American dream, I understand the issues of illegal immigration and those that are who lack the proper respect of coming to the United States legally. With that being said, I know many of those individuals still aspire to be part of the American dream. If elected president, how do you plan to support that population and what is your plans for where, immigration? Do you mind if I ask where you're from? Just I was born in Guyana. 
Um, thank you for the question. Uh, like you, my family has an immigrant story on one side of the family. It, my mom and her grandparents were Polish Jews who miraculously survived the Holocaust. And they actually, they, they stayed in Poland because my grandfather couldn't imagine leaving his family behind. And everybody was killed in their family except the three of them and an aunt. And after the war was over, they lived in Poland for two years. Then they went to Stockholm, Sweden for a year. Then they went, of all places, to Mexico City for a year. And then they came to the United States of America to rebuild their shattered lives, where they became, you know, among the most patriotic Americans I've ever known. They had very thick accents, my grandparents, far thicker than any accent that anybody has um, in, in, in my state. And we've got a lot of immigrants in my state. What I would do is uh, work to, to pass comprehensive immigration reform. I was part of the Gang of Eight in 2013, four Democrats and four Republicans who negotiated the immigration bill in the Senate. We got 68 votes for that bill. That bill, by the way, had more border security in it than what Donald Trump's talking about. It had $46 billion in border security. Donald Trump says Democrats are for open borders. That's a lie. You're for a secure border. I'm for a secure border. You're for the rule of law and immigration. I'm for the rule of law and immigration. But we weren't building a medieval wall down there. We were actually using technology and other kinds of barriers uh, to create a safe border. We created internal security as part of that bill so that this whole issue of, you know, the fact that 40% of the people here that are undocumented came lawfully but overstayed their visa, America has no way to deal with that right now. We fixed that problem. We fixed the problem of small businesses having to be the immigration police by, by updating what's called E-Verify so they could uh, tell who was lawful and not lawful. And we created a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million people that are here that nobody's going to deport back to where they came from. But it was, and it was a tough but fair path. And finally, we had the most progressive DREAM Act that had actually ever even been written that was passed as part of that bill. And, and you say, so you might ask, what happened? And what happened was, the tyranny of the minority in the House of Representatives, where the Freedom Caucus got to run roughshod over a bill that is still, if you poll people in America and ask them, what should we do about immigration, it's the elements of the Gang of Eight bill. So that's what I would want to do as president, and I'd want to do it quickly after assuming the office. Thank you. Thank Quick you for the question. Senator, uh, on the issue of a wall, a physical barrier does have a role, though, in some parts of the border. Of course. But look, Donald Trump goes down there, Adam, and he has a photo op, and he stands. I don't know if I'm allowed to walk over here. Is that all right? <laughs> he stands, and he'll have three of what, like this, his three steel slats. That's what he calls them. We had 350 miles of steel slats in the, in the Gang of Eight bill. 350 miles. So he is... He is, he's sort of foisted on the American people this idea that there are people in America that don't seriously want border security, or that the Democratic Party, as I said earlier, is for open borders. I wrote a bill with much more border security in it than Donald Trump is talking about with his wall. It's just that it was effective and smart. And it came to, with other parts of dealing with our, One thing I didn't mention earlier was we worked hard. I negotiated with Marco Rubio and... Uh, uh, Diane Feinstein and Orrin Hatch to create what was called the Ag Jobs Provision. A lot of you may know that we've, we're depending on uh, foreign-born workers for our agriculture in many places. Um, that was the first time ever that we'd had a bill that was endorsed by both the Farm Workers Union and the growers all across America. So that's the kind of progress we actually made. And again, we got stopped by a group of people 
coloring far outside the mainstream of what's conventional American political thought. Not just Democratic thought, not just independent thought, but in my state, even Republican thought. To go back to your first question, when I started working on immigration, I went out in Colorado and I created something called the Colorado Compact to bring people together on a set of principles. And when we announced it, it was surprising and shocking to a lot of people, but we had some of the most conservative groups in Colorado who represent farmers and ranchers and who know they're not going to preserve their family farms and ranches with this kind of immigration policy. And on the other hand, some of the most progressive um, immigration rights people in the state. So I think it is possible to bring people together if you'll actually make an effort to do it. And going on the cable at night is not the same thing as sitting with people in their living rooms or in their communities asking them to tell you what their concerns or hopes are for our immigration process. I, st I still am absolutely convinced that something along the lines that does include some border security uh, could pass the House and Senate and go to the president for a signature, or me for my signature if I were president. Next question comes from Ken Berlin. Hi. Hi, Senator Bennett. Hi. Welcome. And thank I'm you. glad your health is better. Oh, thank you. Uh, you touched on uh, part of what my question is to you regarding the shutdown. After seeing the last debacle that we just had for 35 days and watching everything about how the millions of Americans that work for the government couldn't go to work, we lost a lot of money. Even when they came back to work, they had to catch up with everything. It affected air traffic controllers, TSA. It happens too often. So my question to you is what could you do as president to ensure that even if you can't come to an agreement on the budget, you could keep the government open because the funding is still there. These yeah. people are still getting the money well, that they were going to It get. makes no sense from a fiscal point of view at all, as you're saying. And it drives me crazy because it's not like um, the rest of the world isn't moving on. You know, it's not as though China isn't continuing to build 3,000 miles of fiber optic cable between uh, Africa and Latin America when we are shut down, or landing uh, a spaceship on the dark side of the moon, or building its one job, or one road, one belt, one road initiative. That's all going on while we're doing this. And the Iranians are all doing what they're doing. And, and by the way, it wasn't just the shutdown. It was six months of having the American people consumed by the president and his $6 billion medieval wall, or the wall that Mexico is supposed to pay for. One other thing I probably should mention is that the, the $46 billion in border security in, in our original proposal um, was actually paid for by immigration fees, not by the Mexicans and not by taxpayers. Um, so that's another thing we could do together. Um, uh, I think this starts by having politicians in Washington who don't believe it is beneficial to shut the government down. We should not shut the government down over politics. The, the no, no school district, I used to be a school superintendent, no mayor would ever get away with saying, oh, we couldn't come to an agreement on 20,000 bucks, which is about the amount of money we're talking about here in the scheme of things. Uh, uh, and that's why we shut the government down and aren't plowing the snow or not letting your kids go to school. I think um, the proposal that I've had on this has been that I think that the United States Senate should have to appear at 8 o'clock the next morning after there's a shutdown, whether the House created it or the Senate created it or the President created it. We should be there at 8 o'clock the next morning, and we should not be able to leave until um, the government's reopened, because the politicians never pay a price on this. And we, we continue to get paid. When I tell people at home this story, about this bill that I've had for several years, 
the part they like the best is that if senators don't show up, the sergeant at arms can go out and arrest them and drag them to the floor. But that's not the only thing. I think there are other changes we could make that would also get people to actually start focusing on the American people's business instead of something else. I think we should ban members of Congress from ever becoming lobbyists, for example. If you've had the privilege to serve in the House or the Senate, you shouldn't become a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. after. But half the people that, that leave Congress and don't retire become lobbyists. I, sometimes people ask me, well, how, how are we finally going to get health care solved? And one way to solve that would be by taking away the subsidy that lawmakers get when we live in a country where we haven't had the dignity to actually give universal health care to everybody in this country. Uh, it'd be amazing how quickly people would start to want to function if they realized that they would lose something. It shouldn't have to come to that, but it has come to that in our modern politics. Okay. Thanks, Thank Ken. You Thank much. you. And we've got about a minute left. I want to do a quick follow on the government shutdown question. In our audience today, we have Romeo and Catherine Dupuis. Their son, Trevor, serves in the Coast Guard. He was one of about 43,000 service members that didn't get paid from that December to January period. Is there any protection you can offer to members of our armed forces, the Coast Guard, uh, in the event of another government shutdown? I, I, first of all, thank you for your son's service in the Coast Guard. We're all very grateful for that. I think it, you know, it, it was an abomination that they, that they weren't paid in the Coast Guard. It is an abomination that the federal workers weren't paid either. I, th I think we shouldn't divide people from each other. I think what we should say is anybody who is willing to serve uh, uh, the United States of America well should be honored by being paid and should not be dishonored by political fights that they have nothing to do with. So I think your son should be paid and I think the federal workforce should be paid. If anybody should not be paid, it's members of Congress that shut the government down. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. We have our New Hampshire town hall voters here with us, and we're going to start with Carolyn Morrill. Hi. Hi. First of all, welcome. Thank you. I am an independent voter, and I will be honest with you, I had never heard of you before. So, with that said, could you tell me, give me a couple of reasons why I should vote for you? Sure. Uh, it, and I'm glad you're here as an independent <laughs> voter because I know independent voters can participate you, you in need this us. primary. It's very important. As I mentioned earlier in the other s segment, I represent a state that's a third Republican, a third independent, and a third uh, Democratic. And you, you know what that looks like. I think I've got a different set of experiences than everybody in this race. I've been in the Senate for 10 years, and I've got a record there of getting bipartisan results, but I also understand. I think what's keeping us from getting the work done that really needs to be done if we're going to deliver what we need to deliver for the next generation. We can't repeat another 10 years of the politics like we've had the last 10 years. You know, I view Donald Trump very much as a symptom of our problems, not as the leading cause of them. And I think just beating him isn't enough. We have to have a vision for how to go forward. And I think the way we need to go forward is by, by as, as Democrats now, or as a candidate for president, is to offer an agenda that actually will speak to the, 
the broad majority of Americans, not just the Democratic base. And I think I've done that. I think I've got the best proposals in this race. The fact that you haven't heard me uh, of me doesn't upset me. It's I haven't spent my life running for political office. In fact, before I was in this job, I was in business and I was a school superintendent. That's a pretty unusual background for somebody running for president. But I think that's valuable uh, to have some experience in schools and classrooms and to understand the challenges that our kids and teachers are confronting and I think it's valuable to have somebody in government who's also had experience in business. There's no one else in the field that has that same record and there isn't anybody who has had to as relentlessly represent people who are the third, a third, a third that I was talking about earlier and I think my consciousness of that, my consciousness of you as a, as a potential voter um, is not something I've invented for this election. It's been what I've been trying to do since I got elected to the Senate. And I think that I believe that in the end, those are the proposals that the American people are going to want to support. And I think I'll be able to make a convincing case that Donald Trump's not going to have much to say on the other side. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Quick follow on that one, Senator. If you're elected president, would you envision having any Republicans in your cabinet? I want to have the very best people in the, in, in, in the cabinet. I, I think the American people should have a reasonable expectation that everybody who runs the cabinet is a world beater and could do anything else. And I would want to have a diverse cabinet in, in every respect, including um, in the membership of their political party. And in terms of your colleagues in the Senate, are there any senators you work with on the Republican side who you would be willing to have in your I have. I actually have friends on the Republican side. I need to consider that question before I can answer it. <laughs> don't want to get them in trouble sometimes. I don't want to get them in trouble, right. and also some of them are pretty tough characters. So I'd have to think about it. But look, I think it's an important point. There's not A president doesn't do this job by themselves. A president needs to be able to attract a team of people that are better at doing their job than he, would, he or she would ever be do, at doing that job and mobilizing them against the great work that this country needs to uh, follow through on. We are an exercise in self-government, you know, and for years I've watched as the Freedom Caucus has tried to separate the government from the American people. There are lots of problems with our federal government, but it is the way in the end we have to make decisions as a nation, and we are a nation. So to my mind, what we've got, to, there's an awful lot of reform that needs to be done at the federal level, and you cannot do that without having the best people. Following on that, you mentioned working on a team. You worked for Governor Hickenlooper, and he's running for president too. Is not your presence in this race, as a former teammate and close associate of his, an indictment of his leadership? You're call, what are you calling me, the Brutus of this uh, uh, Not quite, but yeah. No, yeah, no, it's a, no, I said, yeah, he was such a terrible boss, the only way I could get back at him was by running for office against him. That's not true. He was a really good boss. We had a great partnership. Uh, he and I have had very different experiences. We've got different perspectives on the work. And as you may have noticed, there are more than a couple of candidates in this race. So um, I'm glad he's running. I think uh, it's good that he is. And, um, and I'm happy to have the competition with him as well. Okay, social media question coming in from John Ferrant. Address what we... Address what you would do to tame the opioid crisis. I think this, this is a, obviously I don't need to give people in New Hampshire a lecture on this. You know this better than anybody else. You've suffered with this and your families have suffered with it as families in Colorado have suffered with it. And throughout the process, and by the way, I should say to all of you, um, uh, Maggie Hassan and Jean Shaheen have done a phenomenal job in Washington on this issue. It's still not enough. You know, it, opioids are still 
uh, too available and the alternatives to opioids are not available enough. The, the, the remedies for opioids are not available enough. It's easier to prescribe opioids a lot than it is the, the remedies that we need. So I think that's a piece of the work that we have to do. I introduced a bill, yes, the two, three or four days ago with my friend Bernie Sanders uh, in the Senate that would uh, fine the, opio the, company, the pharmaceutical companies that produce these opioids to the tune of $20 billion to create a fund to be able to pay for the kind of drug addiction uh, treatment that we need and, and to support families who have been hit by this opioid crisis. To my knowledge, that's the most sort of precise um, uh, policy that anybody has brought forward in this election, and I'm glad to have Bernie as a partner on it. Next question comes from Kim Bimsheimer. Good evening, Senator Hi. Bennett. Um, you've survived cancer. Um, I'm here to ask you a question about one of the other top six causes of death without a cure or a treatment, Alzheimer's disease. Every 65 seconds, somebody is diagnosed with this disease, and this year alone, we'll spend $290 billion on care for persons with Alzheimer's disease, $195 million, billion of that being uh, Medicare dollars. What would you do about the Alzheimer's crisis? I, I appreciate very much your advocacy for this and raising it. For, until very re recently, we thought my grandfather had, had died from Alzheimer's disease. He had had it for 20 years. He was the grandparent that I mentioned earlier who had come from Poland. Now we're unsure whether it was because of Alzheimer's or because of the beatings that he suffered during World War II. But in any event, the, the outcome was the same. And uh, because of uh, his experience and because of my family's own experience, I have supported a a a absolutely every dollar for funding of Alzheimer's and increased funding for Alzheimer's every year that I've been in the Senate. Uh, we need to do more at NIH, and we need to understand that this disease, because of the demographic changes that are going on in this country and the growth, the growth of people with Alzheimer's is threatening to um, uh, outstrip our ability to fund it, which is why it's so important for us now to fund the research today. We don't want to wait for a decade or another decade because the numbers of, uh, will not be on our side and the expense of dealing with Alzheimer's without having done the research will be so much greater than if we invest in it today. Thank you. Thank you. Quick follow, Senator. You mentioned your grandparents quite a bit. In your discussions with them, did they talk much about their experience and how do those experiences uh, influence your leadership? They actually never talked about it. The, they never talked about the war. It was something that was left in the, in the past for them. They were, you could tell that there was a terrible sadness about what had happened and for good reason because it was one of the greatest human tragedies that we've ever had. But I, I should say that the, the emotion they had, the sheer joy that they had of becoming American citizens and being American citizens and what it meant to be able to live in a free country where you were safe, where you were able to raise your kids and your grandkids, which they did, uh, and pay in one generation pay for my education and my brother's and sister's education, you know, that is something that's been with me all, all the way along. And, um, and I'm, ve I'm very, very grateful for it. And when I see Donald Trump, you know, attacking immigrants, when I see Donald Trump attacking refugees, when I see a government separating children from their parents at the border, that is the opposite of the beacon that my grandparents were coming to. It's the opposite of the country that they were, 
working for. And frankly, you know, completely the opposite of the, the country that I thought we were living in when I was being superintendent of the Denver Public Schools. And it's really one of the fundamental reasons why I think this election is so important and why I'm running. Another question coming in, this one from email. George Matthews asks, from North Korea to Iran and many places in between, please tell me how you would approach foreign policy and the security of our great nation. Well, again, totally differently than Donald Trump has. When I voted for the Iran deal, some of you will remember there was an, a, a nuclear deal with Iran that the Obama administration had negotiated. And, and we negotiated it because uh, Iran, all the intelligence agencies said that Iran was two to three uh, months away from breaking out to nuclear weapon if they chose to do it, which is very dangerous because Iran is doing all kinds of dangerous things in the region of the Middle East conventionally, but having those things backstopped by a nuclear weapon would, would have been a disaster. And this was an attempt by the Obama administration not to go to war, finally, with a problem in the Middle East. That's what we've done over and over again, is gone to war with this problem and that problem, instead of thinking about, is there some other solution? We spent $5.6 trillion and lost 7,000 Americans, you know, in pursuing it. By the time Donald Trump was pre when I voted for it, it was speculative in a sense. We didn't know what would happen. By the time President Trump was president, um, every intelligence agency in the world said that Iran was now a year from breaking out to a nuclear weapon. And that may not sound like a lot, two to three months versus a year, but it's a lot because you, the year gives you time to mobilize our allies and figure out what to do if it looks like they're breaking out to a bomb. Guess what they're saying this week, they want. They said that we want to have a deal that puts Iran a year away from a nuclear weapon. And this is the same guy who went to negotiate in North Korea and came out tweeting that um, he had fallen in love with the North Korean leader and accepting on Facebook. I know, you can't make it up, really. You should give a second to laugh about it. But, 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 but said that he had fallen in love and, that, and based on representations that, that the leader made and that his father made, which had been lies the whole way along, sent a tweet saying America should sleep at night, that he had just solved something President Obama could never solve. So listen, this guy on foreign affairs, I mean, it, it's not, this is not a Democratic or Republican issue. There, there is nobody who's been president before this who has approached these matters the way that he has approached them with less, with less of a good result. Um, I'm not surprised because I'm not sure we've ever elected anybody as unqualified as he is to deal with these kinds of matters, but... Um, and let's hope we never do it again. Next question is from Joan Wentworth. Hey, Good evening, Joan. Senator. Good evening. Do you have any specific policies or programs that your administration would implement to improve the quality of life for the millions of rural Americans who are struggling economically? Yeah, this, thank you for asking it. This is, a, uh, this is a place where there has been a divide in our politics that we have to knit back together again. You know, I, I, we can't accept a country that's divided between urban places and rural places. We rise and fall together as a nation. That's how I've tried to approach the work as a center, and that's how I try to approach it as president. Just last week, I put out my climate proposal, and if you take a look at it, you'll see that a very big focus of that is the, is the, is the contribution that farmers and ranchers can make to dealing with climate change in this country in a way of giving them the economic benefit of our solving this problem by sequestering carbon um, in the earth. That, that was an attempt by me to reach out directly to people that don't vote for me, but who we're going to need to help solve climate. You can't, 
climate like everything else, you can't solve it two years at a time. You gotta create a durable and enduring solution. And you can't do that without building an unusual coalition. And I don't think you can do that without rural voters. That's why my health care plan in this race is different from other people's health care plans. I'm traveling my state in rural parts of my state where people had no, there was one insurer, no insurers in these places. And I wrote a bill called Medicare X, which is a true public option that eventually will be available, not eventually, in three years, available to everybody in America. But the people I start with are people in a rural county who only have one or less insurer, because I want them to feel like we're listening to them as we think about what we should do on health care. I think the same is true with infrastructure. Water infrastructure in my part of the world is very, very important. And it's been very hard for rural communities to build water infrastructure because they're so small. I have proposals that allow rural, infrastructure, rural um, uh, communities to band together so that they don't have to get defeated by the federal bureaucracy when they're applying there. And finally, broadband is such a huge economic driver in this country. And uh, in too many rural areas, we're using obsolete maps that the, that the FEC has come up, the FCC has come up with. We need to map that properly so that when a carrier says, um, I, I'm, I, I know I have responsibility for that county, but here uh, we're in that county, but it turns out it's only one household, you guys know what I'm talking about, that's actually in the county that we, have, that, we, that we don't say, okay, that's good enough. It's not good enough. As somebody who used to work with kids in schools, I know that if you say to one group of kids, you have access to high-speed internet, and you say to another group of kids, you don't have access to it, you might as well be saying to those kids, you're the ones that get the textbooks, and you, you're not going to get any textbooks in your rural community. I think we have a big opportunity here to build a coalition with rural Americans, partly for everything that I just said, but also because President Trump has made a lot of promises that he has not kept. I wrote a piece the other day in the Wall Street Journal about what he has done to farmers. And the headline, I didn't write the headline, but it was a good headline because it conveyed what I was trying to say. Trump's been bad for farmers. And he has. The trade war we were talking about earlier, the immigration issues that we were talking about earlier, combined with low commodity prices that we have today, I mean, we have, not, we have not been doing right by our farmers since he's been there, or frankly, rural areas for that matter. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joan. Quick follow you on know, that one, Senator. Yeah. Oh, no. I would just say, Joan, also, the part of what's different about me is I don't accept the existing fault lines in our political system because I think to accept those fault lines is to accept failure because we are failing right now to, to have a, a political system that actually is focused on, you know, the rural people that you were talking about, but also the kids in the Denver Public Schools whose superintendent I once was. And we need to rebuild out of the ashes here a, a, a more um, energetic uh, and, and broader coalition of Americans, and I think we can do it. And a quick follow there, Senator, on the issue of rural America and health care. What does your Medicare X plan do to address the issue of maternity care deserts? Uh, here in New Hampshire, uh, women who are pregnant in the Lakes region are driving an hour or more just to find maternity care. We, it has all of the requirements that are in the Affordable Care Act. So people that are covered by it would have access to maternity care. It's called Medicare X. Not a lot of people on Medicare need access to maternity care, but this bill obviously fixes that problem. But that does not deal with the scarcity issue that you're talking about. And that is something we face all over my state. It's a reason why we've got to continue to uh, make sure that we fight the cuts to Medicaid because these rural hospitals, if they are staying open, 
are only staying open now because of the Medicaid expansion that I voted for. So if you, we've got a decision to make about rural communities, are we going to have rural communities or not? And if we are going to have them, they need health care. And if we're going to have them, they need maternity health care as well. So that's a big difference, obviously, between the Democrats in this race and Donald Trump that are in this race. Um, but I don't want to tell you that it's in my plan when it's actually not in that part of the plan. Next question comes from Leonard Morrill. Thank you for taking part with us tonight. Thank you. Um, you were opposed to legalization of marijuana in 2012, but recently seemed to be active in promoting it. Most of your comments seem to be based on making money off it. Do you think marijuana is a beginner's drug and it can lead to addiction? Mike, uh, no, I don't think it's a beginner's drug, and I don't think it can lead to addiction, except in very, very rare cases where I know there are people that have said that they're addicted to it. I'm not going to make a judgment about that. I'm not a doctor. But I think, by and large, the evidence is that it doesn't. Um, uh, my main concern about it when it was first on the ballot was that I was very worried about whether we had measures in place to keep it out of the hands of kids. Whatever you think about marijuana, uh, I think the data is very clear, the science is very clear, that adolescents should not be consuming marijuana because when your brain is growing, um, you shouldn't be consuming it. And um, now that we've had it in my state, I have supported it because, uh, first of all, we're never going to go back again. Second of all, we do have um, uh, a thriving uh, small business uh, environment around it. and. Third, there are a lot of seniors and there are a lot of veterans that are, and others that are benefiting from having the drug there um, uh, and, and who have been extremely convincing to me that their lives are much better as a result of the, of the drug being there from a medical point of view. So um, it's been a great experiment in this country and if it were up to me, we would legalize it everywhere, certainly decriminalize it everywhere because the idea that there are people in this country that are incarcerated uh, for having consumed something that is legal in my state is crazy. So thank you for the question, and thank you for your research, too. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, next question comes from Ken Mason. Thanks. Welcome, Senator. Thank you. Um, one of your core messages is to establish a bipartisan atmosphere in Washington. And frankly, we've heard that message through three or four or five election cycles now. Yet, as we look in from the outside, the divide seems to get wider and angrier and crazier. And so my question is this, what are the two or three things you would do, two or three practical things that you would do to establish a bipartisan so, atmosphere? So here, 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 here's an important, here's a, um, an incredibly important question. We, when I say we, I mean America. And this is my opinion. You don't have to share it, but I just want to give you, in case I get hit by a bus walking out of here, I want you to know <laughs> what I've learned over the last 10 years, which is we have been tyrannized by a group of people in Washington that call themselves the Freedom Caucus. That is a, you know, you can call it right wing, you can call it whatever you want to call it. it in my mind, it's an ironic name, but because they actually believe that their point of view is exactly the right point of view. I don't believe they represent uh, America's Republicans very well, much less our Democrats and independents. But over and over again, they've gotten their way. They've gotten their way on shutdowns. They've gotten their way on 
immigration. They've gotten their way on our lack of funding for education and for infrastructure. They've gotten their way on claiming that they're fiscally responsible and then blowing up the deficit to the biggest degree so they could give tax cuts to rich people. That's what they've been doing while they've been there. And they cannot be compromised with. I, I said earlier, I represent a state that's a third, a third, a third, and I believe everybody in my state deserves my representation, whether they voted for, for me or not. I think that's part of my job. And I think my job is not to increase division, but to try to find places where we can work together. And in my mind, that sort of comes down to two things for the purposes of this election and my candidacy for president. One is that Democrats should make proposals that are going to be widely accepted in America. So I believe, for example, that Medicare X is something that can be sold all over America because it is an option that says anybody who wants public insurance can have public insurance. If you want to have nonprofit insurance, as I did when I got my prostate cancer taken care of, you can keep it. If you, if you, if you got private insurance, you want to keep it, you can keep that. I think that has more of a chance of attracting uh, the broad swath of America than a plan, uh, the Bernie's plan, where I think uh, on this issue I just think he's wrong, where he's taking insurance away from 180 million people, many of whom probably want to keep their insurance. That makes it really hard to do, to get universal health care to people. On climate, I've created a set of proposals that is dead serious, that we have to have net zero emissions by 2050, which is, or earlier if we can, which is what the science says. But I've put a proposal in place that's meant to attract others. And why is that? Because I don't see any other way through the Freedom Caucus except by doing that. Um, some people say, well, I'm naive because they'll never come around. I don't think they will come around. I don't think Mitch McConnell will come around. But I do think that the American people are not nearly as divided as we think they are, or we say they are. And, I, and as Democrats, I'm not assuming you are one, but as Democrats, I think we should be starting from the proposition that we can appeal to a lot of people, not just focusing on the, you know, a part of the Democratic base. We have to include the Democratic base, and it's a very important part of getting elected. There's no question about that. So we need to be very clear that for us, climate change you know, our, our, our approach to climate change when, when I'm president begins the day that I'm president. That it's not something that we're going to wait for and that in this generation we're going to try to fix it. But as we think about it, and we will fix it, but as we think about how to do that, we've got to figure out a way to do it in a way that it doesn't just get torn out two, year, two years later by the Freedom Caucus guys or whoever comes after them. The point is such an important one because if you ignore it, like if you ignore this this, this cancer on our politics, to, to extend a metaphor that you, somebody raised, um, uh, we won't ever get through it. And we'll just be in this endless game of shirts and skins where we don't actually accomplish anything. And when people do say I'm naive, what I say to them is, you know what, I think it's naive to believe, and I've seen it up close, to believe that we can keep doing it the way we're doing it and succeed. I'm tired, tired of losing to climate deniers. President Trump should have been, President Trump should never have become president just on the basis of his climate denial. I mean, there are many other reasons why he shouldn't have been president, but that is just that should have been disqualifying. Yet he was able to make the case that he was stronger on the economy than Democrats. I think we can make the case 
that we believe we need to address climate urgently and we have an economic case to make that's better than Donald Trump's. Thanks, Ken. Next question comes from Laura Landerman-Garber. Thank you for being here Thank in New you. Hampshire. You come from a beautiful state. Thank you. So do you. Thank you. Uh, this question I ask a number of candidates here. I'm very passionate about it. I am a clinical psychologist in New Hampshire, four decades almost, and I work with children and teens primarily. They come to me in now staggering numbers of uh, high levels of anxiety, especially about safety. They tell me they're worried about going to school, they're afraid to go to the mall, they're afraid to go to church, synagogue, or a mosque, they're afraid to go to concerts. This is what they should be doing in their youth. Um, one girl recently told me that for every five steps she takes forward, this is in a little town in New Hampshire, she looks behind her for half of those steps out of fear that someone would randomly hurt her or her family or her friends. What would you tell these frightened youth? And also, what are your plans? We need plans. What, yeah. would, what can we tell them? I mean, I, I think that, um, first of all, Americans need to be free of fear. They need to be free of fear. And my daughters, like the young people that you're seeing, um, are not, because they're a generation of kids that have gone to school uh, in the wake of these school shootings. I mean, there were, I think, almost 40 people shot in Chicago just this weekend. And in my um, state, uh, we had Columbine, but we also had, just in the last month, a school shooting uh, in Colorado. and. It's totally unfair that they're having to grow up that way, and it's totally unfair that we look as a generation as if we're incapable of doing anything about it. And so I think we should do something about it. And uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats in the House, have passed the background check bill, which now Mitch McConnell is obviously trying to avoid, like the plague. But if he does not put that on the floor, we should be going into these elections saying to the American people, look, 80 or 90 percent of Americans support these backgrounds. Colorado is a Western state. We, we dealt with this issue years ago ourselves. And our expectation is that the rest of the country ought to deal with it as well. So I think we can, that would be a great start if we were able to do that. I think the mental health issues that you raised, by the way, are, 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 present in the next generation in ways that they haven't been ever before. It's guns is part of it. Social media is part of it. Um, the lack of investments that we're making in mental health, the fact that we don't treat mental health issues the same way we treat physical health, um, we're reaping a whirlwind for that as a society. The good news is we can do things about all of that. And I think um, if I am elected president, it will be a focus from the very beginning of the administration. Thank you. Thank you. Quick follow-up on that, Senator. Uh, if one does view guns as inherently dangerous, there's a paradox. New Hampshire is one of the safest states in the Union, and it has a strong historical gun culture and very limited gun laws. So why is New Hampshire safe if we have weak guns? I, I don't. I, I've heard that about Vermont as well, that Vermont has no gun laws and, and that there haven't been gun issues. I would say, I would just say to you that from the, point, the vantage point of the rest of the country, that is a paradox. And that it should not be an excuse for not acting. In my state, when we put in background checks for, which you guys don't have here, I understand that, but when we put it, tightened up the background checks, closed the internet loophole, closed the gun show loophole, 
What that has meant is that about 3% of people that come to buy a gun in Colorado or people in Colorado buy a gun are denied the gun. And if you read the list, as I often do on an annual basis, of who is not getting a gun, it's people that have been domestic abusers. It's people who have committed murder. It's people who have raped other people. It's people, I mean, these are not, who have committed violent felonies. And I, it's just hard for me to, to, to sustain an argument that says we're not better off keeping hand, guns out of the hands of people with criminal records like that. And, um, and that's why, even though I appreciate New Hampshire's position on this. I think it's not the right position for the country. All right, Senator Michael Bennett, thank you for joining us thank you for, for conversation with the candidate. We appreciate Good your time. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.